Okay, let's get started. Today's lecture is on Hamlet. Hamlet's probably first performed around 1600, and it's a play, as you probably know, with an interesting textual history. There are three distinct editions in 1603 and 1604 in quarto texts and then in the folio of 1623. I'm not going to talk much about the textual differences in the play, but I think if you're studying it and writing about it, uh, it's well worth having a sense uh, whether the things you're writing about are the same in all three texts or whether they're different. Uh, one way to do that is to look at the Arden Three Hamlet, which prints all three texts. But there are also online versions, the Enfolded Hamlet, which is probably one of the easier ways to look at textual differences. But that's not something I'm going to talk about today. Telling the plot of Hamlet might seem unnecessary, but let's do it anyway. In outline, Hamlet is a revenge plot in which the ghost of Hamlet's father tells him that his death was murder and reveals that the murderer was his brother, Hamlet's uncle Claudius. Claudius has now married Gertrude, Hamlet's mother. There follows a long period of testing the ghost's information via a performed play and some soul-searching about the morality of killing Claudius. Hamlet mistakenly kills an old courtier, Polonius, whose daughter Ophelia goes mad with grief and whose son Laertes comes to claim revenge. Meanwhile, Fortinbras, a foreign prince, is marching through Denmark. In a climactic scene, Laertes and Hamlet fight a fencing match, but foils which are poisoned by the king take both their lives, not before both Claudius and Gertrude have also been poisoned. The entrance of Fortinbras into this shattered kingdom brings the play to a sombre conclusion. So I've said before that some of my focusing questions for this series of lectures seem very naive, and perhaps this is the worst one yet. The question today is, why is Hamlet called Hamlet? Well, depending on how you're hearing the question, we could say that it's clear that the play Hamlet is called Hamlet because it's named after its main character, who is called Hamlet. Tragedies, after all, signal their interest in the singular self, largely, by naming themselves after their protagonists, unlike comedies, which tend to be named for moods or for phrases. This is so dominant a convention that um, of play titles where only the title survives from this period, there are a large number of lost plays from this period, in fact probably only about uh, a sixth or something of the plays performed do we now have. Uh, so a large number of plays where only the title exists in records. If the title is a name, we tend to assume it's a tragedy or a history. Uh, so it's a, it's a very strong convention in this period. So that answer, Hamlet is named after its main character because it's a tragedy, only prompts the next question. Why is Prince Hamlet called Hamlet? Another easy answer presents itself, as very often in Shakespeare's work works, here he takes both plot and character names from his sources. So very often Shakespeare imports uh, the names of characters as well as the outline of plot from the sources he's reading. He doesn't always do that, and uh, it's interesting uh, when he doesn't, but here he does. The sources of Hamlet are themselves slightly oblique. We know that Shakespeare used a history of the Danes by Saxo Grammaticus, in which he found the story of Amleth, a prince who feigns madness after his uncle kills his father, who is sent away to Britain, and who returns to take revenge on the king. 
So we know that the name Amleth comes from this story, probably via a French translation from the 1570s. What confuses the source study of this play is the apparent existence of a phantom play related to this one, which we do not in fact have, an earlier version of Hamlet known to scholars as the Ur-Hamlet, Ur, the prefix meaning earliest or original. So it's important to be clear that we don't have the Ur-Hamlet, uh, even though people talk about it often, critics talk about it as if we do. We don't have it. Uh, and to my mind, it's uh, dubious whether it actually existed at all. But if it did exist, it may have been by Shakespeare or by Thomas Kidd, author of the era's most popular revenge play, The Spanish Tragedy, and a play I'm going to come back to later in the lecture. The issue is that there are references to a Hamlet play early in the 1590s. It's uncomfortable for scholars to think that Shakespeare might have written Hamlet earlier in the 1590s, because of course we know Hamlet is a very useful play for arguing about the way Shakespeare's career develops. And if Hamlet turned out to be an earlier play... Uh, it would really spoil that narrative. So there is, there's a lot of resistance to the idea that Shakespeare might have written uh, an earlier Hamlet and that references uh, which predate the date we think the play is may actually be to this play. But there are references to a Hamlet play in the early 1590s and even apparent quotations from it in work by Thomas Nash, who quotes the phrases, blood is a beggar and Hamlet revenge. Uh, the second one we might think is in our play, but in fact it never occurs. And this may suggest that, as he did with King Lear and with Henry V, Shakespeare here rewrites an earlier play, uh, whether by himself or someone else, and transfers the name of its characters wholesale. So that means that Hamlet is called Hamlet because that's what he was called in the earlier play or in the other sources. So, what's the issue with this question? Well, I want to try and use it to talk about two particular critical approaches. One is biographical. Is there, as many critics have asserted, a connection between the character Hamlet and the name of Shakespeare's son, Hamnet, who died in 1596? The second issue is a more thematic one. How does the name of Hamlet help to construct the play's characteristically nostalgic mode, and how might we understand the implications of Hamlet being such a nostalgic play? I'm going to start with the second point first. So thinking about Hamlet as a nostalgic play may seem willful, given that in so many ways it has seemed the work in which Shakespeare is most modern. For Sigmund Freud and for Karl Marx, Shakespeare was the textual exemplar for their theories of psychological and economic modernity, and they turned to Hamlet to illustrate that. Lacan, Nietzsche, Adorno, Prufrock all used Hamlet to theorise ideas of modern selfhood. In his landmark study, Shakespeare, Our Contemporary, translated into English in 1965, the Polish theatre director Jan Kott imagined Hamlet wearing the black sweater of the uh, European intellectual and reading Sartre and Beckett. Every age, from David Warner at Stratford in the 1960s to David Tennant at Stratford uh, in the first decade of the 21st century, has rediscovered Hamlet himself as a modern individual, most at home in the modern world. 
for us, Hamlet's soliloquies have come to represent the completely overdetermined articulation of fraught or reflective consciousness. So Hamlet seems like a modern man caught in the process of emotional and intellectual formation. <coughs> so what I'm suggesting is that we're completely attuned to seeing Hamlet as a play that anticipates modernity, that looks forward. And it's absolutely clear that Hamlet is a play which is much more popular uh, and influential now than it ever was at the beginning of the 17th century. So it's come into its own in some way uh, that didn't really register, I think, with audiences at the time. And one way of explaining its apparent uh, uh, lack of popularity uh, at the time uh, of its writing is to say that it was, it's too ahead of its time. It's, too, uh, it's something which only the modern world can come to terms with. So because of all that weight of feeling that Hamlet is modern, that Hamlet anticipates us, that Hamlet uh, writes the modern self in some way, it's quite hard for us to think about the ways the play is deeply retrospective, looks backwards rather than forwards. But what I want to try and talk about today is a Hamlet that's backward-looking and caught up in its own history. That's to say, for a play which has had so vital an afterlife, it is itself deeply mordant. And that's, I think, where the name of Hamlet starts to echo rather differently. So we've already established that the name Hamlet comes from the play's sources, but one thing which is absolutely distinctive about Shakespeare's naming in this play is that he doubles the name Hamlet both for the dead father and for the living son. So in none of the sources is that overlap between the generations registered by them sharing a name. In Saxo Grammaticus, Am Amleth's father has the wonderful name Horwendil, for instance. In case we don't spot the significance of this, Shakespeare repeats the repetition. Fortinbras, too, is son to a father who has the same name. Clearly, there are plenty of names for Shakespeare to choose from. The play chooses to duplicate them. This also means that the first time we hear the word Hamlet in this play, it refers not to the living prince, but to the dead former king. Horatio's speech in Act 1, Scene 1, names valiant Hamlet as the man who slew Fortinbras. Uh, so there's a strange sort of uh, anticipatory version of the story uh, in which two characters who are going to go on to encounter each other later in the play have already had their decisive encounter uh, in which Hamlet uh, slew Fortinbras. So the play's first Hamlet is a ghost. Hamlet really is a play of the undead. And it's tempting perhaps to speculate that this might be the Hamlet the play is named after, the overshadowing Hyperion who is so idolised by his son that it is impossible for the son properly to succeed either in the political sense or in the sense of uh, uh, being fulfilled. When he encounters the ghost for the first time, Hamlet addresses it with his own name. I'll call thee Hamlet, King, Father, Royal Dane, O answer me. I'll call thee Hamlet, King, Father, Royal Dane, O answer me. And that strangely anticipates a more famous assertion of, 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 of what it is to be Hamlet, which comes later in the play, it is I, Hamlet the Dane. Uh, so these words have already been sort of um, occupied or allocated to the dead king. So the ghost pulls the beginning of the play backwards. 
From the outset, Hamlet the play is preoccupied with the past. In the tense opening scene on the Elsinore battlements, Marcellus asks, Hath this thing appeared again tonight? Hath this thing appeared again tonight? So the action tells us that the play is doubly reiterative. A ghost is always a recollection of the past, and a ghost that has appeared before is doubly recollective. As Horatio informs us, the ghost represents both a more martial Denmark, a nostalgic world of sledding Polacks, one of the textual cruxes uh, in the play, we don't quite know what it means, but it's very brave, whatever it is, and other feats of daring do. But later descriptions of the ghost, which describe his murder as he lay sleeping in his orchard, evoke a more a, a sort of broader sense of a lost golden world, a kind of prelapsarian past. The serpent that cr- that stole my crown is obviously a kind of Edenic reference. <coughs> the murder of a brother pushes Eden beyond reach, as Claudius admits when he tries unsuccessfully to pray in the middle of the play, recollecting that his crime hath the primal eldest curse upon it, a brother's murder. The primal eldest curse, clearly, is the curse of Cain, who killed his brother Abel. So father and son share a name, and thus they cannot be properly distinguished in the aural economy of the play. When we hear the name, we don't immediately know who it refers to. And one consequence of that is that young Hamlet cannot form an independent identity for himself. These repeated names link Hamlet more closely than we sometimes allow to those concerns with succession, both political and psychological, of the history plays. In some ways, Hamlet's nearest neighbour in the canon is not another tragic protagonist like Othello or Macbeth, but the prince Henry in Henry IV, part one, another prince trying to escape the burden of a father with whom he shares the same name. We can see Henry IV, part one, goes to considerable, um, considerable onomastic lengths to disguise this fact by calling Prince Henry, Hal, Harry, uh, young wag, all those kinds of things. These seem to be ways that the play has of trying to evade the fact that he and his father have the same name. Michael Sheen's recent performance of a psychiatric ward Hamlet in which he plays all of the characters, or Laurence Olivier's uncredited voiceover of the ghost's role in his 1948 film, in which he also plays the main character. These are both literalizations of the overlap between father and son. And this is something that's missed by the more conventional way of doubling the ghost in the play with Claudius or with the gravedigger, for instance, both interesting uh, ideas about where the ghost might come back uh, in the play. But those two versions think about Hamlet, father and son, as being, in some sense, doubled. So the appearance of the ghost pulls Hamlet into a past and away from the future. In Act 1, Scene 2, when we first meet Hamlet, uh, young Hamlet, that's to say, we see a distinction between Laertes, the son of Polonius, who requests permission to go back to France and is granted it. The contrast between that and the situation of Hamlet himself. For your intent in going back to school in Wittenberg, it is most retrograde to our desire, Claudius tells Hamlet. Hamlet allows himself, therefore, to be persuaded to stay at home rather than to return to university. 
And in that decision, he fixes himself as forever a child. Perhaps this is connected to the old critical chestnut, How Old is Hamlet? In Greg Doran's production of 2009 with David Tennant as Hamlet, available now on film, the scene in which the ghost appears in Gertrude's chamber is played uh, less as the sort of psychosexual drama that we've often seen it as in, for example, Mel Gibson's film version, where Hamlet uh, is more or less having sex with his mother, and more a kind of affectionate family portrait. The parents sit companionably on the bed. The ghost strokes Gertrude's hair. Their young son sits happily at their feet. It shows that his development is in some sense arrested, The ghost's encouragement, remember me, is a command for the son to join him in the past. A past that is shown by the play's structure, of course, Old Hamlet is already murdered by the time the play begins, to be completely unreachable. That past is already beyond the play's theatrical world. So, when Claudius tells Hamlet that mourning for his father's death is unnatural, he is not just callous, but really articulating a quite different worldview or a quite different direction of travel, we might say. Nature's common theme, says Claudius, is the death of fathers. You must know your father lost a father. That father lost, lost his. Stuff happens, says Claudius. Time moves on. Sons live longer than fathers. Claudius's pragmatic approach to succession and progress, therefore, is quite different from the impeded and circular Remember Me, which structures Hamlet's role in the play. What Hamlet does in the play tends to be uh, about undoing and negation rather than about doing and progress. You can see that he undoes a lot of things which might actually be plot themes. Uh, He breaks off his relationship with Ophelia, so he's not in a kind of courtship plot. Uh, he, He does not return to university, so he doesn't move on. Uh, the, the, the play flirts with a different location when Hamlet is sent to England, but of course Hamlet comes back from that and, and, and never takes the play with him there. So all kinds of ways that a plot might move things, move things ahead are frustrated uh, by the way the play works. Hamlet's primary attachments, of course, are to the dead, not to the living. The skull of Yorick gives rise to one of the play's most famous lines and clearly its most iconic visual moment. Alas, poor Yorick, I knew him, Horatio, a fellow of infinite jest, of excellent fancy. The often reproduced image of Hamlet face to face with the skull is a kind of cataclysmic reverse of the graphic we use to illustrate evolution with those primates gradually straightening up into Homo sapiens. Here, progress collapses. We look straight into the past, but also with it the future. Now, since at least Freud, the idea that Hamlet cannot make progress in this play has been understood psychologically. This is a psychological impediment to do with mourning and melancholia, Freud tells us, uh, that prevents him uh, from making progress. But I think there are other ways, too, to see it, less as an individual or a personal property and more as as a cultural one bound up with the specific moment of the play's composition. I guess throughout this, these lectures, I'm sort of stepping back from psychological explanations of why characters do what they do and trying to think more about dramatic ones or historical ones. 
I've already indicated that Hamlet's written around 1600, shortly after As You Like It, which I discussed in last week's lecture. And like that play, I think, Hamlet registers the anxieties of that particular moment. The comparison I made earlier with Henry IV makes clear, I think, how much Hamlet shares with the English history plays of the earlier 1590s, now censored by that bishop's ban which banned satire and history that I talked about last week, again in relation to As You Like It. Like those earlier history plays, that's to say, Hamlet has as part of its charge issues of regime change and political stability that arose from uncertainty over the Tudor succession. The question of the next monarch preoccupied late Elizabethan society, as we know, but could not be discussed directly. And the theatre was one, perhaps the dominant environment, in which different scenarios about the transfer of power could be rehearsed, as in the deposition of Richard II, the reign of Henry IV, the rise of Richard III, the challenge to singular kingship in King John. These are all plays I've already lectured on. So Hamlet then exists as a kind of belated history play, and in that a rather apocalyptic one. Uh, in some ways, this is the kind of end of history uh, in a Fukuyama sense. Mysteriously, Hamlet himself, despite being evidently old enough, does not inherit the throne. And the play itself does not, I think, adequately explain why this should be. Given uh, the cultural atmosphere of its first performance, when succession was such a hot topic, it's hard to think that this oversight would have gone unnoticed. It's hard to think that this just doesn't matter in 1600, when what matters more than anything is who is going to succeed. Here we have a, a, a kingdom which has, uh, in some ways, what England really wants, uh, an intelligent uh, young male heir, uh, but, it, but it doesn't give the throne to him, and that's, I think that's something important about the play. Instead, the Danish royal family in Hamlet destroys itself without outside interference, and the kingdom itself is left to fall into foreign hands. Fortinbras marches on into Denmark and is able, suavely and without shedding a single drop of his own soldier's blood, to enter the throne room and take over. With sorrow, says Fortinbras. Fortinbras is the best, I think, of these characters who comes in and kind of cashes in uh, on, on what's happened at the end of a, of a tragedy. With sorrow, I embrace my fortune. I have some rights of memory in this kingdom. Memory, again. Which now to claim my vantage doth invite me. Interesting uh, comparison, maybe, with at the end of Julius Caesar. A similar, highly political um, review of, of what's happened. In my lecture on Richard III, I talked about the way in which that play never invests much dramatic energy in its eventual winner, Richard's nemesis, Richmond. Richmond wins the battle for the kingdom, but he barely even figures in the battle for the play. We might say something similar of Fortinbras, a figure often and in fact very easily cut from Hamlet, uh, so much so that some critics feel Fortinbras was added in. It's so easy to take him back out again uh, that he was never integral to the play's design. So he's, he's rather easily cut from the play and one with whom it is very hard to take much interest. The future is hardly presented in Hamlet as something to look forward to. We're almost inclined to agree with Hamlet's own solipsism. The rest is silence, uh, as if it really is all over once Hamlet is dead.
So as an image of late Elizabethan anxieties then, Hamlet has an extremely bleak ending. But like Elizabethan culture more widely, the play prefers to look backwards rather than forwards. To think forwards was, after all, a crime. Now, connected to this backward-looking must be the issue of religion. We all probably know that one of the big issues about Hamlet is what this Catholic ghost coming back from Catholic purgatory is doing in an apparently Protestant play in a Protestant London. The ghost's description of his imprisonment, quote, confined to fast in fires till the foul crimes done in my days of nature are burnt and purged away, describes an outlawed doctrine of purgatory, just as the ghost's very presence is anathema to Protestant theology. Horatio, the alumnus of a distinctly Protestant university, Wittenberg, associated ineluctably with Martin Luther, is more orthodox. He questions what the ghost intends, warning Hamlet not to follow it in case it might, quote, deprive your sovereignty of reason and draw you into madness. Taking up suggestions that Shakespeare's father, John Shakespeare, who was fined for recusancy, that's uh, the crime of not attending church, taking up suggestions that that meant that John Shakespeare was an adherent of Catholicism, the old faith, Stephen Greenblatt has memorably described Hamlet as a Protestant son haunted by the ghost of a Catholic father. And in that, he represents a peculiarly, a peculiarly Elizabethan predicament, a child of the Reformation over whom is cast the long shadow of the Catholic past. I think seeing the murder of old Hamlet as some sort of allegory for doctrinal change is too stark. Shakespeare <coughs> happily is not writing The Fairy Queen. But seeing something of the play's nostalgic pull as the unquiet remnants of a shared Catholic past gives us a specific religious historiography for the play's structure and tone. And one of the things uh, you'll be aware of in, in Shakespeare studies of the last decade or so has been that turn to religion, uh, a, a new sense of the importance of religious identity and religious controversy to all the culture, cultural products, including the drama of this period. Now, one final aspect of the play's nostalgia, I think, is theatrical. Hamlet draws extensively on kids' blockbuster play, The Spanish Tragedy. He takes from that earlier play the name Horatio, the appearance of the ghost, the image of a woman running mad, the murder in a garden, and the device of the play within the play. They, these all come, I think, wholesale from the revenge uh, play predecessor. They're not in Saxo Grammaticus and the story uh, of Amleth. Now, we're used to seeing Shakespeare as someone who routinely transforms the dross of his sources into his own pure gold. So whenever we talk about Shakespeare's sources, we're saying... He makes a very flabby kind of boring story into something really dramatic. He cuts and shapes it and makes something which was just awful, really, really brilliant. Uh, that's, I mean, that's a very common way. We, we only ever really talk about Shakespeare's sources in that way. But we might try and think here, in the relation between, the, between Hamlet and the Spanish tragedy, about a relationship to previous plays which is less effortlessly superior. Harold Bloom's influential account of literary history 
the anxiety of influence, introduced a paradigm that saw poets forever wrestling with their strong poetic predecessors in a creative but violent Oedipal rivalry. Bloom says that the poet is always struggling against the father poet who is stronger than him and who he must kind of overcome in order uh, to gain his own poetic strength. Now, Shakespeare is the only significant poet that Bloom exempts from this paradigm, saying that Shakespeare alone had no strong predecessors. I think he must be wrong, and that Kid's Spanish tragedy is perhaps uh, the father figure in this poetic agon here. The Spanish tragedy is a huge influence, we might even say a haunting, of Hamlet. This most popular of Elizabethan plays, this is the play... This really is the play that everybody knows, the Spanish tragedy in Elizabethan England. Uh, and I've sometimes used the comparison of saying, this is like, this is the Elizabethan England Star Wars. Everybody knows what it looks like and what it's about. Even if they haven't seen it or it's so long since they saw it that they've kind of forgotten about it. It has a, uh, it has a kind of currency and a recognisability uh, which nothing else has and particularly not Hamlet. So this most popular of Elizabethan plays is ever present in Hamlet, from its structure to its language. Even the word stalking, which is used of the ghost's distinctive movement across the stage, is one which is very strongly associated with descriptions of the stage presence of Edward Allain, the chief actor with the Admiral's men, and quite likely the first uh, actor to play Hieronimo. Uh, stalking seems to have been um, a slightly uh, a recognisably earlier uh, kind of stage movement, non-naturalistic stage movement. Stalking is associated very much with Alain and not with later actors. But in wrestling with the past, and I think it's quite useful to try and push the Oedipal theme in Hamlet away from a sort of tired cliche about whether Hamlet wants to sleep with his mother and towards a more textual sense of Oedipal rivalry, that this might be a play which, which is in a kind of struggle with parental figures, parental textual figures rather than parental character figures. Uh, in wrestling with the past, that's to say, Shakespeare makes a crucial change. The grief that motivates Kid's Hieronimo is, of course, the death of a son, Horatio. But Hamlet is mourning his father. The dynamic of past and of future is quite distinctly altered. The play's theatrical nost nostalgia, though, I think looks back further than the decade or so to Kid's play, which probably dates from the early 1590s, back to the mid-century Tudor interludes such as Sackville and Norton's Gorboduc, which typically separated out, they particularly separated out action and words by having a dumb show which performed action and then uh, a, a, a kind of verse, formal verse presentation uh, which gave um, uh, the, the accompanying script. This you'll see immediately is the dramaturgy of The Mousetrap, the play that the players bring to Elsinore, dumb show plus verse presentation. So in Hamlet, the players come to Elsinore and Hamlet shows himself a connoisseur of their performances. Together, they recall a heroic repertoire. Uh, the Priam and, and the Siege of Troy is the, is the speech that Hamlet is struggling uh, to recall, just as Polonius recalls Julius Caesar. There are heroic figures in the background uh, of Hamlet and they're heroic dramatic figures. The players enact a closely paralleled version of Old Hamlet's murder. An extended stage direction spells out in considerable detail how this, how this action is mimed. 
the dumb show enters. Enter a king and queen very lovingly, the queen embracing him. She kneels and makes show of protestation unto him. He takes her up and declines his head upon her neck. He lays him down on a bank of flowers. I mean, if you've been trying to look at Shakespeare's stage directions for actions within plays, you'll see that Shakespeare never gives us that kind of detail, but the dumb show is all choreographed uh, for us. The descriptions continue with the king's poisoning and the wooing by the poisoner of the queen who seems loath and willing a while, but in the end accepts his love. The play then repeats this mimed action, but this time verbally. And it's when uh, the verbal um, uh, retelling of the story comes out that, that Claudius interrupts the uh, performance, calling for light, and the, the play is over. So we might observe in passing that this dramaturgical split between doing and saying is rather apt for the whole play of Hamlet in which the relationship between doing and talking about doing is famously fraught. But more importantly, I think, for what I'm trying to think about here, which is the issue of retrospection, it is that these nuggets of theatre that come out when Hamlet is engaged with the players come out as affectionate tributes, nostalgic fossilised versions of earlier forms of drama, uh, which are being implicitly um, distinguished from what uh, Hamlet sees as a very modern uh, and rather regrettable development, the development of the boys' companies. So you remember when Hamlet's talking to the players, he says uh, that they talk about how bad it is that uh, a group of little ayases of, of small people, small children, have taken over uh, the theatre scene. So instead of this kind of modern theatre world, Hamlet is thinking back to an older theatrical culture. In Kenneth Branagh's film of Hamlet, the mousetrap and the other flashbacks in the play to the player's repertoire are filled with cameo roles by older actors. It's a kind of backlist homage to the cinematic and theatrical past. Here we see John Gielgud, Charlton Heston, uh, Judi Dench. These are, these are figures from a previous theatrical or cinematic generation. And it's a modern version of how the particular form of theatre in its staging and its stilted language are deeply nostalgic in Hamlet. Like the time of old Hamlet, of Yorick, of Priam, of Hieronimo, things, the play says, were better in the past. So far then, I've been suggesting that Hamlet is called Hamlet because it's one of the ways the play pulls him backwards into previous plays and previous generations. So the naming becomes an emblem of the play's frustrated teleology and its difficulty of moving forward. So I think the name Hamlet thus enacts something of the dramatic treading of water that I discussed in As You Like It in the last lecture. And therefore, I think this structure is related to historical and cultural factors about the end of the Elizabethan era, the nostalgia that made history such a popular genre in the theatre and beyond. So it results in a play that resists its own movement to annihilation by looping back on itself into a parallel and doomed universe in which Hamlet is always and already dead. Hamlet is like one of those characters in a time travel film who has to go backwards to the moment of his own death in order to rewrite his own history, but he can't. 
So this cumulative nostalgia provides a reading which thinks about Hamlet as a symptom of its own moment, its own historical moment, rather than, as is more usual, one that thinks about Hamlet as an anticipation of, of us. And one which resists the movement to update the play, which has been such an insistent and such a fruitful project of theatre, and particularly of cinema, in our own era. So Hamlet's name connects him to the past of his own play and hobbles him from moving forward. It condemns him to a life of remembering, revenging, and all those other re-prefixes which suggest repetition and redundancy. So how might we fit this reading into my other point, something which is more obviously connected with Shakespeare's own individual biography, not with a kind of broad brushstroke sense of what, what was it like to be uh, a kind of fan de siècle Elizabethan, but what was it like to be William Shakespeare? The idea that Hamlet actually recalls the young Hamnet. Shakespeare's twin children, Hamnet and Judith, were named after their neighbours, Hamnet and Judith Sadler. And scholars have been quick to notice that when Hamnet Sadler is mentioned in Shakespeare's will, his name is spelt Hamlet. Hamnet Shakespeare died in 1596, aged nine. As Freud put it in the interpretation of dreams with considerable certainty, it can, of course, only be the poet's own mind which confronts us in Hamlet. I observe that Hamlet was written immediately after the death of Shakespeare's father, that is, under the immediate impact of his bereavement. And as we also may assume, while his childhood feelings about his father had been freshly revived, it is known too that Shakespeare's own son, who died at an early age, bore the name of Hamnet, which is identical with Hamlet. Uh, modern critics are unclear whether Hamnet and Hamlet are in fact identical, but you can see how uh, the association arises. In this, as in much else of his work on Shakespeare, Freud is heir to Victorian notions of biographical criticism. The 19th century invented a narrative of Shakespeare's plays. One of the things the 19th century critics were completely preoccupied by was what was the right order of Shakespeare's plays, because they wanted to make a kind of intellectual biography uh, of the playwright. And if you look at late Victorian books on Shakespeare, they almost always move, uh, try and move chronologically or in a per perceived chronology. This is a reading which sees the turn from comedies to tragedies as a consequence of his own moods uh, and the character of Prospero in The Tempest as a self-portrait. So there are lots of ways in which we haven't quite let go of that critical paradigm. Uh, we still think that early works are less sophisticated than later ones, which is essentially a kind of biographical narrative about how, how a writer develops. As a corollary, 19th century biographical scholarship also invented, although I think it didn't intend to, the so-called authorship controversy, a feeling that, in fact, Shakespeare's life did not adequately map onto the plays. It couldn't explain the plays, and that into that gap uh, there was a kind of interpretive dissonance which meant that Shakespeare couldn't have written Shakespeare because he hadn't been to Italy or he hadn't studied law. He hadn't had a life which gave rise in a proper way to the plays. Uh, the idea that Shakespeare didn't write Shakespeare was a view that Freud also uh, espoused at certain points. So, in some ways, the association between Hamlet and Hamnet uh, is not is part of Freud's kind of own backward lookingness to, towards Victorian criticism. Freud as a Victorian, rather than Freud uh, as as a modern uh, inventing modern psychoanalysis. 
But it's an idea, uh, the, the idea that Hamlet derives from its author's grief for his dead son has been revived recently and <coughs> extremely influentially by Stephen Greenblatt in a best-selling biography, Will in the World, or How Shakespeare Became Shakespeare. The renewed popularity of Shakespearean biography in our own period, so even as we as sort of professional literary critics say we shouldn't read uh, liter literature bi uh, biographically, literary biography is one of the biggest growing sort of literary genres uh, in, our, in our own period. Um, you know, there's a huge appetite for literary biography, for writers' biographies uh, in the marketplace, and particularly for biographies of Shakespeare. So there's a kind of mismatch between a critical piety which says biography is not relevant to literary study uh, and a kind of narrative appetite for uh, literary biography. So the renewed popularity of Shakespearean biography in our own period means that the search for points of putative emotional connection between the plays and the life, or rather the invention of an emotional life as a back projection from the plays uh, has been uh, has returned to the critical table. One of the problems about Shakespeare's biography, as you know, is that there is no detail whatsoever about what he thought, uh, what he felt, uh, what he believed in, uh, only these very stark details about uh, financial transactions and so on. Uh, and it's only biographers have always been uh, struggled to know how much of the emotion in the plays it is permissible to kind of suck back yeah, into the life. So can biography help us with Hamlet? Clearly this is a play which is preoccupied by grief and by mourning, a play which looks back backward to something it knows to be unrecoverable. And clearly the, name, the idea that Hamlet's name registers Hamnet encourages us to see that lost thing as something personal rather than, as I've been arguing so far, as something cultural. The gains of this reading, okay, the gains of thinking that Hamlet and Hamnet are in some way connected, are twofold. Firstly, the reading authenticates the play's emotional landscape by connecting it to familial grief. Um, many people, I think, reading Renaissance literature feel um, ethically a bit at sea by uh, the difficulty of uh, understanding the emotions expressed in that literature as coming from some real experience. If you think about how, how we worry about sonnets, whether sonnets are literary exercises or whether they're biographical, that might be an example. So, so um, w w one gain is that it, it, so it authenticates the emotional landscape of, of Hamlet by saying this comes from a really experienced grief. The second gain, I think, is that it helps to humanise Shakespeare whose apparent abandonment of his young family in Stratford to pursue his career in London has always been a problem to biographers. How should we, how should we take this, uh, th th this apparent uh, uh, carelessness about his children? In fact, we don't know whether Shakespeare even attended Hamnet's funeral in August 1596. But the idea that the grief produced this literary masterpiece goes some way to excusing Shakespeare from any uh, charge of neglect. Both Hamlet the play and Shakespeare the writer, that's to say, take a kind of benefit from the association of Hamlet and Hamlet. And I guess I've been thinking about that because uh, one, thing, one of the questions I think is most interesting about Shakespeare criticism is why do people want to believe what they believe, what's at stake in arguing one thing or another. But there's also counter-evidence to this, counter-evidence that Hamlet and Hamlet are not in fact connected. From his earliest plays, long before Hamlet's death, Shakespeare envisages the bond between father and son as crucial. In the third part of Henry VI, a famous stage direction introduces us to a sort of distilled 
a kind of microcosm of how terrible civil war is. This is the stage direction. Enter a son that hath killed his father at one door and a father that hath killed his son at another door. Shakespeare's most famous depiction of grief for a dead child comes from King John, where Constance laments her son Arthur. Grief fills up the... Sorry, uh, that's, I've made a mess of this wonderful first line, so I'll start it again. Grief fills the room up of my absent child, lies in his bed, walks up and down with me, puts on his pretty looks, repeats his words, remembers me of all his gracious parts, stuffs out his vacant garments with his form. Then have I reason to be fond of grief. We're so invested in the phantom of Shakespeare's own emotional biography that many critics date <coughs> King John, the play in which that speech occurs, at 1596, solely because they think it could only have been written after Hamlet's death. All the other evidence about the play suggests it's written earlier than that. Shakespeare, I think the answer to that is that Shakespeare can access grief without the immediate stimulus of Hamlet's death. And that shouldn't really be surprising to us because one thing we know about writers is they make things up. So the association of Hamlet and Hamnet may actually work to underestimate the inventive or creative powers of the dramatist on the one hand and to overestimate the claims of confessional writing on the other Writing to alleviate inner personal torments is a romantic construction of the mind of the artist which hardly exists in this earlier period. The most authentic source of writing in the Renaissance is previous writing, not personal experience. Shakespeare doesn't, I think, write autobiography much as we might want him to. So, I've been talking about Hamlet as a nostalgic play and emphasising the strange echo of Hamlet's name for the play's recursive structure and for its habit of retrospection. Rather than seeing this as the play in which modernity is most fully anticipated, I've tried to stress the ways it seeks a kind of comfort in the past and then to suggest that this registers less Shakespeare's own personal inner landscape and more the cultural position of the Elizabethan fin de siècle. Next week, I'll be talking about the comedy Much Ado About Nothing, and the question I want to ask is, why does everyone believe Don John? I hope I'll see you then. Thank you.